I would try to close my eyes for a bit and then open them and look around and wonder, where am I? I realized this feeling inside of me that I am imprisoned, that something has been taken from me, my freedom. That was one of our two guests for today's episode. We'll hear more from her in a bit. This is the eighth episode of our podcast, the podcast that follows the trial of two Syrian officials who both came here to Germany as refugees, but then found themselves behind bars in a court in the German city of Koblenz, accused of crimes against humanity and faced with their victims who are seeking justice. This is Branch 251. I'm Karam Shomali. And I'm Fritz Streif. Welcome back. So Fritz, the eighth episode already. Uh, the podcast has been around for two months now, and so has the trial. Yeah, it uh, it feels like we've been on this for much longer for some reason. It, it feels like this trial has already gone on for much longer than eight weeks, but it's actually still just at the beginning. Yeah, and now that the court is still in recess, it feels like a bit of a break. Why do you think they take these long breaks sometimes in between court sessions? Yeah, I mean, a three-week uh, break does seem long, but I assume they just they just need a break every now and then, you know? Everybody uh, everybody involved, the judges, the prosecutor, the participating victims and their lawyers, and the accused and their lawyers too, you know? This is, this is hard work, a trial like this. Like we said a few weeks ago, it's like a full-time job for both of them. Especially Anwar R, we have heard from court observers that he has really started being more active, uh, listening attentively to testimonies. Uh, when Faraz Fayyad and Anwar Albunni spoke in court as witnesses, he was writing all kinds of notes and passing on messages to his interpreters and lawyers. Yeah, he was listening very closely, taking in every word, immediately deducting and analyzing and all that, it seemed. You know, sort of like the meticulous investigator that also our guest uh, Christoph Reuter uh, described on the podcast uh, on the episode about Anwar. Yeah. Absolutely, yes. Last week, we described the most recent witness testimonies in court. And today on the podcast, we will dive a bit deeper into the accounts of Syrian survivors. We heard from two of them last week, Firas Fayyad and Anwar Bonni. They testified in court as witnesses, and both of them were there, represented many others. We mentioned this number before, but I will just say it again because it is sort of easy to forget because of the unimaginable size of, of these numbers. A report in the New York Times from May last year, 2019, referred to 128,000 detainees who are presumed to be either dead or still in custody at this point or you know, at the time of the report of uh, May last year, and at least 14,000, quote-unquote, killed under torture over the years. And these numbers do not even include those who survived. Uh, an article I read this week mentions another staggering number of reportedly around 100,000 individuals detained in Syrian prisons at this very moment, often under inhumane circumstances. And people I speak to think the numbers are much higher. They assume it would be somewhere around 200,000 at least. Mm. So as always, a pretty damning dark figure on top of what is more or less known of the 100,000. It's hard to deal with these staggering numbers. They often seem so unsizable, so unreal. And then our brains, at least mine, just kind of disregard them as, as if they didn't exist, or at least they don't manage to 
understand what these terrible, terrible statistics actually mean. And while we are reminding ourselves that these numbers are absolutely important, uh, we want to go back to the human impressions again, to the actual stories, because they represent the big numbers. They are real humans, individuals. Mm -hmm. We both went to talk to survivors of the Syrian torture apparatus this week. We wanted to know more about their stories from the past, but mostly also about their lives today. How they managed to deal with the painful memories and what they would ask the two defendants if they had the chance to talk to them. So on today's episode, we will first present you guys the conversation that Karam had with Nuran Algamian, and then we will listen to my conversation with Luna Watfa. I went to meet Nuran in Berlin. We had spoken many times on the phone, but this was the first time I met her in person. I have come across her story many years ago because she's a well-known revolutionary figure amongst Syrians. Uh, she was arrested in 2012 when she was still 20 years old and she was a political science student at Damascus University at that time. She's a joyful person and she's uh, soft-spoken. We first shared a meal in Berlin's famous Alexanderplatz then walked down the Spree, where we recorded this interview. So, if you hear some music in the background, that's just a street performer near the Berliner Dome at 9 p.m. on a lovely day. Here is my conversation with her. Would you like to sit here? Okay. Okay. Uh, on May 27, in 2012, I joined a sit-in in Al-Tiliani district. The sit-in was infiltrated. Within a few minutes, gunshots were fired and we were dispersed. I ran for six or seven minutes to a street in Al-Rauda. I was stopped there by two men on a motorbike. They asked me for ID and then they detained me. My mother was there near the sit-in. She knew I was joining and wanted to watch me from afar. She felt something might happen. She was curious and decided to film the sit-in. And of course, as you know, filming can be used as an accusation and she was detained for this reason. I was put on the bus that took us to Branch 40 in Algis al Abiyad. I saw my mother there and I had really bad feelings. I was like, wow, why is my mom here? This was really, really one of the harshest moments. She had her head down and her hands behind her back. Her tears were falling down. One couldn't raise their head or move or talk. The guards kept cursing and insulting us. We entered branch 40. The treatment was really bad and about midnight we were transferred to a Khatib branch. I was in denial. I didn't believe that I was there. Like, what? What just happened? And the overwhelming thing was that my mother was with me. This really destroyed me psychologically. 
I was really sleepy, so I would try to close my eyes for a bit and then open them and look around and wonder, where am I? I realized this feeling inside of me that I am imprisoned, that something has been taken from me, my freedom. It is really hard to describe this feeling in an ugly place where no one knows anything about you. Even you don't know anything about yourself. Dirty blankets filled with bugs. It is a disgusting place and we were 17 females in a tiny place. We were not all political detainees. Some girls were accused of prostitution. It seemed like those girls were in and out of the prison the whole time. They were used to it. I was astonished by the inhumane way they treated me and talked to me. Sometimes if I slept a bit longer than the agreed upon time, because of the lack of places, if I slept a bit longer, they would verbally attack me. Do you remember a specific conversation you had with your mom there? I remember the type of conversations we had. The majority of them were about fear, especially with the mystery of the whole situation overshadowing what was to happen next. We didn't know what was going to happen next. We were thinking about what my father and my sister would be doing. It was a really harsh situation. On the first night, they interrogated my mom and the rest of the girls who were detained with me. Then I asked the jailer, when will they be interrogating me? He told me, my interrogator will be special. And he wasn't at the branch then and will be coming the next day. And he said that was because my file was big. In mama's interrogation, she was asked why she joined the protest in such questions that are mixed with the regime's method of insulting detainees. The following morning, I was taken to an interrogator. He accused me of many things and said I incited murder and I would be in jail for 10 years for it but he could let me out if I helped him, to give him information about individuals. I was beaten up and tortured. I don't know. I don't, I don't want to go into the details of this, if it's okay. Okay, okay. Then they called my mother's name and they took her out. I thought she left prison. Then my name was called. I was taken from the communal cell to solitary confinement, where I suffered a lot psychologically. When was the first time you saw Anwar R during your detention? I saw him once during the time I was in solitary confinement. I asked to see him. I knew he worked there because on the 15th of February in 2011, this branch detained my sister Marwa. 
few days later, I went there with my family and we were allowed to visit her. This was the first time I saw him. We entered his office as civilians to check on a family member, not as detainees. Of course, such a thing doesn't happen, but it was still the beginning of the revolution. She was beaten up and tortured. That is when I met Anwar and I was under the impression that he was a good guy and might help, at least take me out of solitary confinement. After three or four days of me insisting to see him, a jailer took me to him. I was blindfolded, but I still could see a little bit. I was sure it was Anwar. I could read his name on a wooden plate on his desk. It said Colonel Anwar Razlan. I sat there while the jailer waited outside. I was devastated and I was crying. He asked me, why are you joining protests? Don't you know this is wrong? His cold demeanor was really irritating. At that time, I was young. I was devastated not knowing what would happen to me or where my mom was. I didn't know where my family was and my family didn't know where I was. They didn't know for how long I would be detained. All the while, his cold demeanor continued while laughing. He laughed at me. I told him, I don't want anything. Just put me back in the communal cell. Don't leave me in a cell alone because I'm about to lose my mind. I was like a child talking to him. It was painful. I was in pain. I felt like my life was in his hands. He said, it is okay, Amo. He called me Amo. Hi, listeners. Karam here. In Syrian Arabic, an older man would address you as Amo, and that is to suggest that he is a close person and can be trusted. He then called the jailer and told him to take me back to the other women. I saw he raised his eyebrows when he talked to the jailer to actually tell him to take me back to solitary confinement. He wanted me to hear something and understand that the jailer is the one who took me to solitary confinement. And the jailer took me to solitary confinement. I pretended I couldn't eat, and I had constant nosebleeds because of the psychological pressure, and I made some drama. I smeared the blood on my clothes and on the walls and told them I was bleeding. They got worried. Next morning, they took me out of my cell, but then they opened the door for another individual cell. Then I saw they were taking me to the solitary confinement cell where my mother was being held. And all of this time you were under the impression that your mom was out of prison? Yes, I thought the whole time she was out of jail. We hugged each other for almost 30 minutes, but it was an ugly scene. She seemed tired and hurt. We stayed at that individual cell for a while together. It was very tiny. We couldn't both sleep at the same time. Our bodies were stuck to each other. It was very hot and infested with bugs. Every day we heard sounds of torture. We slept to sounds of torture. 
كنا ننام على اصوات التعزي بقيت بحدود لثلاث شهور I was detained for about three months. I was conditionally released after paying a bail. I was released after being detained at branch 40, branch 251, military security branch 285, then military jurisdiction branch and civil jurisdiction then landed at Adra prison from which I was released. I have been living in Switzerland for three years, somehow comfortable. I'm working and raising my daughter and thinking of finishing my studies. Eventually, life will go on and I am determined to go on with my life. This was one of the most difficult moments in my life. The power he had because of his position. He could end a person's life. That is how it felt. Well, he didn't end my life, but he scarred me on the inside. Shiraz Fayyad said he could forgive him if he admits. Would you forgive him? No. I won't forgive him. This is something he committed. Regret or admitting guilt doesn't wash the crimes committed before. When you look back, do you regret joining that sit-in? No, of course not. Because that was real. And is still real. And what happened is not only a phase in my life, it is part of who I am now. Thank you, Nuran. Nuran is actually ready to testify as a witness in this trial. We'll be updating you on that in future episodes. Our next guest is Luna Watfa. This is her nickname, her alias. It's the same one she used for her work as a journalist in Syria before she was detained. And she still prefers to go by that name. Her real name is Sumaya Alolabi. She was a political prisoner in Syria, where she was detained for her work as a journalist, covering the biggest chemical weapon attack in the early years of the Syrian conflict. She now works as a freelance journalist in Koblenz, of all places. We heard from her briefly in an early episode when she commented on the statement by Anwar R. I felt like I, I will have some bad emotion about uh, what I'm going to hear, but that never happened because that wasn't truth. That was Luna a few weeks ago. Now I got the chance to have a longer conversation with her on the phone. I started by asking her about the incredible coincidence that she lives in the same place that this trial is now also taking place. Hey Luna, guten Morgen. How are you? Yeah, I'm fine. And how are you? Yeah, good. Thank you. Thank you so much for making the time in the morning. I know that you have a really busy day. Uh, no, no, no at all. You're living in Koblenz must be the biggest coincidence that I have heard in a long time. Yeah, it was really good for me because uh, to be in the same city that uh, this trial take place it's just something i i was really lucky with it so when were you when were you detained in branch 251 i was arrested by the 40 branch and it belonged to the state security branches as well uh, then i was transferred to al khatib branch and then uh, to the general intelligence department branch and that was in 2014 i stayed uh, in the security branches for a period of uh, two and a half months mm -hmm. uh, a full month of them in al khatib branch Before that, I was transferred to the center prison of women in Damascus, uh, but the entire period of my detention was a year and one month. And what did yeah. they arrest you for? What did, what did they say you did? 
The main uh, charge was uh, that I'm a journalist who covered the uh, chemical massacre which happened uh, in Eastern Ghouta in 2013. I uh, collected all the evidence uh, that happened in that time, more than 800 names for the victims and videos also and photos. And I leaked all these informations uh, to the opposition outside Syria. So um, because of that, uh, they arrested me and they asked me to say that uh, this massacre never happened at all. And they forced me to go into TV interview in Al Khatiba branch and to say in, uh, in front of the camera that uh, this massacre never happened at all and we faked all the evidence. And all victims in these videos were no actor and, and not uh, victims at all. So you covered the earliest, yeah. biggest chemical weapon attack uh, that happened in Syria on 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 the civilian population, um, with I, th I believe uh, some sources say that close to or maybe even more than a thousand uh, people died, civilians died in that in that attack, right? Right. They only wanted to deny it. That never happened at all. That's what they wanted to say, and what they forced me to say also. Mm -hmm. And for that, they put you into into the prisons. Yeah. And uh, how did they eventually arrest you? Uh, it happened on January 29, 2014. It was 10 a.m. I stopped working cafe with a friend in Damascus. Someone came to me and asked for my ID. Then he ordered me to be to go with him outside the cafe. There were two cars occupied with many security devices and nearly 20 security men. In that moment, there were a scarf on my shoulders. Uh, they put it on my eyes so that I couldn't see where they were taking me. Mm -hmm. And then they took me to a security branch. Two right. hours of investigation with threats after that. When they couldn't take any information from me, they took me again while I was blindfolded to my house. Mm -hmm. There was my son, 14 years old, and my daughter was at school. She was 11 years old. Uh, then they started confiscating everything in the house, uh, laptops, cameras, and also money. They were approximately 12 security men. The person in charge of them told me to give him the names of the rest of the people who work with me. I told him there is no one but me. He ordered them uh, at this moment to arrest my son in front of my eyes and to arrest my daughter from her school. In this moment, I started to talk. I told him it's illegal to arrest anyone without arrest warrant. He laughed, actually, and he said, I'm the law. I can do whatever I want. Mm. Throughout my time in the security branches, I was threatened to torture my children in front of me if I didn't tell them what they wanted to hear. They threatened to torture your children in front of you? Yeah, mm. all the time. After arriving uh, to the central prison, I knew that my children were not arrested, but rather they put my son in the toilet of the house so that I couldn't see him and threatened him not to make any noise or sound so I can hear him. Uh, he remained three hours in the toilet after we left and he was unable to move, uh, to move out of fear. They did this only to blackmail me. Mm -hmm. How did your son eventually get out of the toilet? Um, after three hours, he, he could move, so he just went out, but he stayed one month without talking about what happened because mm -hmm. he couldn't. And your daughter? She was fine. They didn't uh, went to the school. Okay. 
And if you if you can and if you want to talk about it, can you just describe what happened to you in prison? Yeah, of course. Uh, the worst torture I had was my threat the whole time to torture my children and that they were arrested with me and couldn't know if they were okay or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was also beaten on my feet in Al Khatib branch and also I was uh, sexually harassed in the branch 40. Yeah, that was in the past. No, really, it's okay. I, I feel like it's my duty to tell this story again and again, more and more, because there's still people in these branches and there are still people who who have this kind of, of torture. So if we cannot say anything about them, so no one will know what happened there. Mm-hmm. Well, it's very yeah. brave of you and, and very courageous. We wanted to ask you um, and some others on the podcast uh, this week, just about how you're how you're coping with your experiences in in everyday life you know living with these with these painful memories uh, my main suffering since i was released uh, is the imbalance in my memory uh, for example uh, some things happen with me now like very normal things uh, in life but uh, the first thing i remember from it is something happened to me in the prison so uh, Sometimes I feel that everything that happened before or after the prison period did not happen at all or did not exist. Uh, as if my entire life is only the period that I spent in prison. And this is why I told you before that I feel like the prison lives inside me. Uh, sometimes I focus on the funny things uh, that uh, happened between us as detainees and try to transfer memory memory from uh, prison to something simple or uh, something funny. Uh, of course, I can't. Al- I cannot always uh, do that, uh, especially since the funny situations were very rare or not even exist in the prison. Mm-hmm. And we we were also wondering what would you want to ask the two suspects if you had the chance to do that. I would say, um, I would like to ask them about two things, actually. The first thing, uh, why scared you our request for freedom in the beginning of our revolution? Because that's that's something I can't understand. Uh, the second question will be, why your families never came to, to support you while you are in this court? Uh, I think about that because if one of my family was in Iyad or Anwar's place and I thought he was right, I would have supported him whatever happened. Hmm. Why do you think they did what they did? I think because they were afraid for losing their positions and then uh, they chose the winner's side in this uh, in that time, 2012. Do you have any message or messages for for them, for the two accused, for Anwar R and Iyad A? If you could, if you could say something to them? I would like to say, uh, no matter how long it takes, uh, no one will be immune from accountability. This is my uh, conviction as well, not uh, just uh, my message to them. Mm-hmm. What was interesting in court when the filmmaker Firas Fayad testified as a witness, he said that he would actually be ready to forgive uh, Anwar R if he would acknowledge that torture took place. Is that something you can uh, see for yourself? Actually, I can fully understand Fayyad's position. Uh, after World War II, for example, the Germans had to move beyond that, uh, beyond what happened and move forward because they wanted to rebuild uh, their country. 
I think that uh, at some point we should move forward. But that does not mean uh, at all that uh, war criminals are not held accountable all, uh, only because uh, they have uh, confessed uh, to their crimes. But after they get uh, the punishment that they deserve, we must uh, get past it. Mm-hmm. Because if we don't, uh, we will not be able to reconstruct Syria and we cannot live as one people. Mm-hmm. I see. As a victim... How has this trial impacted your life so far? Some of the decisions are very painful, especially those that included facts about the work of the security branches, such as uh, IAG's investigation, uh, uh, for example, and uh, the information he provided. As a former detainee, I can imagine the place that they are talking about and hear the, the screams of the detainees uh, being uh, tortured. My memory returned uh, to that place. It's not easy to leave it again after uh, trying just to forget it. Uh, but because I go there uh, in, in this court as a journalist, I quickly get out of these feelings and try to focus on my work. Mm-hmm. It's not easy at all, but uh, I do my best to do that. Yeah, and we will also definitely uh, refer to your articles in our show notes, especially for those of our listeners who, who prefer to read Arabic. Have you have you been actively trying to look for more victims in a way of sort of finding additional evidence? As a journalist who covering this trial, yes, I try to find the new evidence and the new victims as well. But I cannot disclose that now. All I can say now that it was much more than I expected. Okay, and at some point you will come forward with this information and, and publish it? Yes, of course. And that will be in English, not in Arabic. I hope soon. Okay. Well, thank you so much for for making the time to speak to us today, Luna. We really appreciate it, and and we we know it's not easy for you. We really look forward to to reading your uh, stories and your reports on the on the case, and specifically, really looking forward to the story that you will break hopefully soon with new information. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> thank you for it. Okay, thank you, and Luna. Have a nice day. Yeah, you too, and uh, take care of yourself. Okay, we'll speak soon. Yeah. Bye-bye. Take care. Of course. Bye-bye. Ciao, ciao. Thank you, Luna, for being a guest on our podcast. And uh, it's good here to note again that Luna was detained at Branch 251 after the period of the indictment against the two accused. Uh, she was detained there after Iyad A and Anwar R had already left the branch and just to prevent any misunderstandings. She was at Branch 251 and other prisons from early 2014 until early 2015. And she's not a witness in this case, but of course, very much involved as a survivor and now covering the trial as a journalist. Two brave women indeed. They both managed to survive and share their stories with the rest of the world. The painful details and the disturbing memories. Their stories are unique, but they are also the stories of tens of thousands of other victims and survivors. Okay, we're now slowly approaching the end of this week's episode. This is all a lot, and we will need some time to digest this, I think, ourselves, and you listeners as well, I think. And to help us with that, to help us understand some of the things that Nuran and and Luna say here a bit better, we are talking to two experts on this subject matter, two experts on war victims' trauma. And we will share our conversations with them on the podcast next week. So do stay tuned for that. It will be kind of like a, a part two of this episode survivors of of detention and torture, it is possible and they overcome this, but it takes a toll that's often invisible. 
More from them next week on the podcast. Until then, take care, everybody. Please keep sending us your questions about the episode, about the podcast, about the trial, whatever you are curious about. And do subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done that yet, so you can get every episode automatically every week. And if you want to support Branch 251, the podcast, please review it on your podcast app, share it in your social media and other networks, and hit the donate button on our website where it says support this podcast. Every small bit is very much appreciated. Yes, thank you for your support, everybody. It means a lot and keeps this podcast going. Branch 251 is listener-supported. It's created, produced, and hosted by the two of us. Shout out to Martin Fan Dorn Malin for his production feedback this week and to everyone else that has given us feedback. And thank you so much, Katarina Bull, for helping with the voiceover. I'm Karam Shomali. And I'm Fritz Streif. See you next time on Branch 251. See you then.